Welcome to part two of my interview with Tara Anison, head of technical crypto advisory at Elliptic. If you haven't had a chance yet, I recommend listening to part one first, where we talk about crypto scams on Instagram, a new scam called pig butchering, Tara's background in traditional finance, recent sanctions against Tornado Cash, and implications on the future of privacy in crypto. As always, please remember to leave a review and subscribe to the Atria podcast. Enjoy. And so the same narratives, the same typologies, they cycle back round. You have uh, the common one that you hear, oh my God, it's at least every year. Uh, it goes quiet for a bit and then sort of go, but hang on, isn't Bitcoin ruining the planet with its energy use? I hear it uses as much energy as insert yeah. country here. Uh, and that comes around cyclically, like so often. Um, and now I've got wonderful stats from like the Bitcoin Mining Council, massive shout out to what they do uh, to actually like add the data to be like, most of this rhetoric is absolute rubbish or is not framed in the right way. Um, and so they're fighting back with data. Blockstream are planning to do something very similar um, They've got this uh, big kind of report and ecosystem um, initiative they're going to be putting out. And so I personally really favor the data-led approach. It's putting data in the front of regulators, industry makers, uh, skeptics. Like We've got the data. We're an incredibly fortunate industry that it's all on chain in, for the most part, a transparent ledger. Let's absolutely use that. That is as much to our kind of detriment with people pointing holes and be like, oh, look at all the energy use, as it's uh, positive because we have open data we can pull together. So I think for me, like education is absolutely key on the types of typologies, you know, forewarned is forearmed, uh, but also just putting the pure and simple data. So someone says, oh, but isn't it just used by criminals? No, let us show you the data. Is it destroying the planet? No, let's let us show you the data. Um, is you know anything you can think of any question? Let's work with the data that we have, and it's you know fantastic high quality data from us and uh, across the industry more broadly. And I think we should be really heavily leaning on that because the people often throwing the stones in the glass houses don't have access to that data. And when we say to the banking industry, how many kilojoules do you use a year? They don't have a clue. They can't get that data. Bitcoin, yeah, we can pull that off, you know, blockchain.com. Yeah. <laughs> We've got it everywhere. And so I think we need to be using that data much more to counteract these, in many cases, like false narratives that we see across the industry, whether it's false to be misleading or false to be nefarious. Like, let's use the data. Yeah, it can be false to be misleading, false to be nefarious, and then false just because you want to hop on train and, <laughs> yeah. and repeat these things. Now, I agree with you. And there was a there was a pretty good report several months ago that was sent to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States. You know, Jack Dorsey from formerly of Twitter, uh, Block, uh, Michael Saylor, a bunch of other big names, a lot of mining companies signed on to this. And um, they were saying to the EPA respectfully the information that you're operating on, the assumptions that you're operating on, you don't really even understand how a data center works. Uh, and mm. and yeah. you, I don't know if they said this in the in this particular report, but it gets back to what you're saying with where are the same criticisms of the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks? I mean, what yeah. countries are we going to compare them to? You know, you'll take uh, Bitcoin and someone will say like, uh, the energy equivalent of Peru or something like that. I mean, if you take the big tech companies, you're going to have to pick a lot bigger of a country. 
to, to criticize. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, that's just the reality. That said, though, I feel like some of it even comes from within the industry. And I, I think that Ethereum moving to proof of stake and one of the big talking points about that is it's going to reduce energy consumption by, you know, 99.95% or something like that. That's great. Of course, yeah. if that's the case, that's going to be a talking point that you promote. It does kind of inherently suggest that there's something wrong with the way that uh, proof of work in Bitcoin, does it not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge. And it's, it's almost like a religious argument. Like I have this um, quite often with people I know in the industry where they'll be like, well, you know, Bitcoin is the worst because it uses so much uh, energy and wastes energy. And I kind of flip it somewhere. I'm like, well, what do you mean by waste? Because how I view proof of work is a super secure mining algorithm, which is powering a, I think we're still above the trillion dollar market cap, who knows with the price today, but that is powering people in, you know, Kenya to be able to afford tractors or um, to pay for blood that is then uh, shipped across in drones in like Rwanda or to uh, allow women in Afghanistan to receive it and pay for goods and services when they can't access traditional rails to pay for or to help a kid in the US uh, fundraise to go to college through selling some, you know, uh, well, in this case, NFTs, but that'll be on Ethereum. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like there's all these use cases. And so to me, that energy isn't wasted. It's powering this like global financial network. Like that's not wasted. And so I think it just depends how you look at it because there will of course be people who say, well, you know, why don't we just make it proof of stake and then you can have all those benefits and it uses less energy. Uh, but really I haven't seen any kind of appetite within the Bitcoin community to move to proof of stake. I, I couldn't advocate for it personally, like look at Ethereum's journey, it's taken seven years to make the move. Um, yes, you could argue that their ecosystem is much more complex, but like you're ripping out the heart of something and you know, yeah. it's open heart surgery <laughs> that you're doing on a you know trillion dollar network or if you would be in Bitcoin's case. And like, to me, that's just too big a risk to take. Like just let Bitcoin exist as, as the sound money it is, powering like a global financial network, which is changing lives, employing people. Like, you know, if you quantify the, the positive impact Bitcoin has made across us in the West, but also in developing nations, in countries like El Salvador, which I've, I've visited, uh, I've paid for my dinner in Bitcoin. It was amazing, literally the best experience ever. Like, you know, it's, it is, changing the world. I sound like some kind of religious fanatic here, I suppose, but like it's not wasted energy. And actually, and I'll, I'll stop in a second because I could go on the energy debate for hours, but in many cases, it's using energy which would otherwise be wasted. So it's not taking the energy that you would use to power your microwave or put your bedroom light on. It's energy which couldn't be used because you'd hit the cap for today, or it's being used from renewable energy, which would otherwise be wasted because we don't have battery technology. Like it's not zapping energy out of somewhere else. It's using energy, which would have been wasted. It's using like recycled energy almost. And so I think that's really hard for many people to grasp because they see these huge numbers. They see the comparison to like Egypt and they're like, wow. So if you turn Bitcoin off, the whole of Egypt could have free energy for a year. You're like, no, that's not how it works. And so again, that's why I think it's like a narrative that needs to be challenged with data, education and, and helping people understand it because we live in an incredibly complex industry that uses mathematical terms, computing terms, we put code on screen, we use economics terms, like it is a baffling industry. So we need to also kind of help 
the regulators, the lawmakers, the governments, anyone across our industry understand this stuff. And and so I love doing things like this and also just educating generally because I think like if if one person from a government let's say here's my little energy speech or my financial privacy speech and they take that forward in their thinking and that helps make better policy like what an amazing win like that that's fantastic so I'm yeah always looking to try and educate on it because I think it can make all the difference when we think about good policy better decisions and and a essentially better outcomes for everyone in the industry and everyone outside. Yeah, and complexity lends itself to these kinds of narratives that are very declarative. Mm. Uh, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Um, That's a very declarative statement. Uh, It does use a lot of energy. Uh, There are arguments on that side that are semi-valid. Um, you're bringing up a lot of good counter arguments. I personally, you know, I wouldn't want every one of these new projects that we see popping up to all be proof of work. Uh, that's fine. I, I also am an advocate of Bitcoin remaining proof of work, but maybe not many others uh, going that way. I like the direction that Ethereum's headed. I like when we go back to uh, people saying, as you brought up earlier, people often say to you, the biggest problem with Bitcoin is the energy consumption. And like on one hand, you don't really want to arm these people with a better argument, but you also kind of want to tell them that there are much better arguments for what the biggest problem with Bitcoin is. <laughs> and there are a lot of problems. Uh, and the energy consumption is not number one. Um, the, the idea of kind of how slow and inefficient the you do the mm. trade-off is for the security which obviously is something lightning network is trying to solve but i mean that's a bigger issue with bitcoin in terms of it ever becoming a popularized medium of exchange uh that's that to me is a more of a number one issue than than the energy consumption would be but um what, what when you think about ethereum and i don't want to date this uh podcast too much but we are coming up to the merge here <laughs> and uh you know obviously yeah. we had the bellatrix update uh we we're small hiccups let's say but but moving forward effectively uh this should happen september 15th um what what do you think the promises of Ethereum. I mean, you can talk a little bit about the merge as well, if you'd like. But I think especially for for people newer to the industry, when they're saying, well, what's really the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? I mean, programmable money, of course, you have the whole application environment with Ethereum, but kind of in your own words, but what is the promise of Ethereum that's so attractive to people? Yeah, so I think the the big one has to be scalability. And that's something that the merge doesn't necessarily give us out the box like the merge is really exciting because it's that open heart surgery as i as i mentioned but it's really a demonstration that a really big ecosystem can do fundamental changes to how it operates to improve and so what we're going to see on um, i think it's actually tracking to september the 13th now when i looked on uh, when merge.com earlier obviously the uh, we're going to see a bit of uh, back and forth on those dates but it was nice. It was tracking for 9 p.m. UTC rather than 2 a.m. UTC the other day. I was like, oh, God, that's going to be a late night watching that one. Um, but we'll see where it lands. So I think for me, the excitement is that we've got this really busy ecosystem that people are building on. They're putting their time and, and efforts towards to create something which is, as you say, programmable money, but an ecosystem where you can kind of like build whatever your imagination creates. It's like the next version of the internet. Like you couldn't have imagined Deliveroo back in 
the early 1990s when everything was like, you know, big computers, dial-up broadband, like the, the applications just could not be imagined. And already when we look at the kind of journey of Ethereum from 2015 to now, you know, we've had NFTs, we've got DeFi, we've got metaverses popping up. Like these are just really creative concepts. And that's not what Bitcoin is for. Bitcoin is an electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash system. Ethereum is meant to be so much more creative, the decentralized world computer. And so it excites me that by going on this kind of journey with the merge, we're doing this like really big lift and shift. We're moving to deflationary money or an even more deflationary money supply, what a lot of people are calling now ultrasound money, uh, really reducing that issuance down from, I think it's like 4.3% to 0.43%. Like that's absolutely huge. Uh, if you're a fan of the kind of 21 million Bitcoin hard cap, then you should definitely be a fan of <laughs> money goes down um, in terms of supply for Ether. So I think it's a really exciting uh, time for the ecosystem. We're living through a milestone, which will be talked about forevermore. But for me, Actually, I'm already looking far ahead. I'm thinking proposal builder separation, protodank sharding, like all of these exciting Ethereum improvement proposals that are already coming down the line with the merge, the verge, the surge, the splurge, the surge, like all of this cool stuff that's coming. Like the merge is almost like, oh yeah, that that's yeah, that'll be past us in a second. Like actually there's way cooler stuff that's coming to give us scalability, to allow us to do even more for a lot cheaper, because it's still blooming expensive to do anything on ethereum and so I, I really see it as you know the foundation of essentially whatever your mind can concoct in the next 10 30 300 3000 years who knows so yeah i'm i'm super excited for the merge i'm actually doing a um a twitter space tomorrow with uh, third web academy all on the merge everything that's happening on it because there's i mean more to talk through than we could uh, in the what's remaining of here today and, and i'm guessing there'll be more than we can get through in an hour tomorrow yeah. as well so yeah i'm i'm really stoked for I, that, I was going wait. to say you know we, we could have an entire uh conversation just about the merge <laughs> but just just for listeners who might not be quite as familiar in a nutshell the merge is ethereum's transition from uh, proof of work to a proof of stake consensus mechanism. Uh, the consensus mechanism is basically just how the different nodes or computers in a network reach agreement about the validity of transactions. So all of the uh, different blockchain networks are going to follow a consensus mechanism. And uh, this move for Ethereum from proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses, where all of the nodes are in competition, uh, well, that's an uh, oversimplified way to put it. But when you have basically all the nodes competing every time, uh, it is more energy intensive and uh, uh, just takes a little bit longer sometimes. Whereas if you have more of a lottery-like system, which is proof of stake, that's what we're talking about with the merge. Um, another uh, just topic that you brought up that I'd like to quickly touch on is with sharding. And uh, this, this is, I think, a more difficult one to understand. So sharding in a nutshell, again, is uh, a partitioning technique where instead of having every node handle the entire transaction load of the network, they're kind of dealing with their own division or their, their shard. And by doing so, you improve scalability by, uh, by basically, I mean, it's basically the same concept of division of labor, basically. Um, but but like yeah. I think it's sometimes hard for people to understand when they get into learning about how blockchains work in this distributed network, then to say that each node's not going to handle the whole network transaction, it kind of feels antithetical uh, in the, at that surface level, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, even 
even more than that, when you consider uh, what Ethereum is planning to do with like EAP, uh, I think it's 4844, um, which is basically removing the transaction history. So it's part of the, the purge um, roadmap. So it's saying at the moment, I think the plan is for transaction history to exist for about a month on chain and thereafter if you want older data which you'd currently access through an archive node on ethereum instead you would have to go to some kind of third party whether it's like Arweave or ipfs or um you know even a block explorer for instance uh, they would look to probably hold all the data so we're looking at a future world for ethereum where you don't have all the data available all of the time instead uh, this idea of uh, data availability sampling. So essentially checking the data was at some point available. You have not all nodes having all the data. So what we're talking about in terms of sharding. And it is really a, a fundamental kind of like rip up and, and think again of how the blockchain is architected. And that's what I, I really like about the merge is that actually the merge is like this really small part of it, like the big exciting stuff is, is actually yet to come. And so I'm almost excited for the merge to be over so we can start talking about all the other really cool stuff. And what I really like about Ethereum's kind of sharding strategy is that maybe it was like a year ago, two years ago, it all blends into one. There was the idea of having like 64 shards and you'd have the beacon chain and you'd have all these independent shards. And then basically that was like, actually, no, scrap that. We're not going to do that anymore. Let's go for a roll-up centric roadmap. This idea of like proto dank sharding and dank sharding, uh, data availability, like a whole new idea of how it was going to be done. And so I really like the idea that uh, the kind of Ethereum ecosystem is just like evolving this, thinking about it differently. And like you've got people like Vitalik who are giving speeches about like, so I have this idea about here. What do you all think? And everyone's like, no, that's rubbish. Let's try something else. So yeah, we love it. And so you know, we're watching kind of history being made of this blockchain, which is critical to so so many apps and or dApps more specifically and services that kind of run adjacent to it. And so I think with uh, sharding, what is exciting about it is it's like still developing what the plan is. Um, and I wrote a piece not not too long ago about kind of how this is looking at the moment, the di different eaps behind it. Uh, but who knows what it'll look like tomorrow or next week, or maybe there'll be a new idea. Uh, but certainly I think the, the roll-up centric idea, so having these layer twos, as a, a kind of good way to think about it is, and this is how I describe it to people. Uh, let's say you've got a road uh, which can contain a certain amount of traffic and you want to put more traffic down it. You've got a couple of other options. Either you make the road bigger, so you kind of knock down what's around it, make it bigger, or you put some bypasses in. So you've got other roads to go down. And what Ethereum is looking to do is basically add some kind of bypasses, layer twos, where you can go and do transactions over there. And maybe one bypass has some like nice uh, food services on, and that's the kind of functionality you get. Maybe one is like a toll road, so you have to pay a little bit to get on there, but it's like really nice smooth drive. Like all these bypasses can have different features. Maybe one is like a, a privacy bypass no cctv on there do what you like. like there's all these different features you can build on your bypasses but fundamentally it allows you to get more traffic down the roads to, to get to where you want to go and so i think it's really exciting that we're looking at this idea of a rolex centric roadmap vitalik and gang kind of not seeing arbitrum optimism uh the kind of zk syncs as competition they're like no you like come join our community you're part of it you're part of the growth strategy and i really love the fact they've done that i think that's a much better way than trying to kind of have all of the scalability at the layer one yeah I, I use a very similar analogy for layer twos and side chains and i happen to live in denver so it, it takes us 
in the neighborhood of two hours with minimal traffic to get to the mountains to go skiing and whatnot. Uh, And now sometimes, you know, it's up to four hours because the traffic's getting so bad. So that that analogy tends to resonate with people here pretty easily when you're explaining the the traffic up (laughs) to the mountains. And I I'm going to I'm going to borrow a little bit of uh, your description now, too, with the the different features that you could have on each road. I really I really like that. You also brought up with the merge, the the analogy to open heart surgery, which I like. I've heard a couple of others. I was talking mm. to a, a developer in Toronto recently, uh, an Ethereum developer, and uh, he was comparing it to uh, changing the engine of a moving, of a flying plane mm. without any disruption to the yeah. flight, you know, <laughs> uh, which I thought was good. I've heard people make a similar analogy to, uh, you know, a speeding car, a race car, basically, and while it's on the track, you're, you're changing the engine of. So, um I like that. You know, when it when it comes to censorship resistance and privacy, well, one one more thing I wanted to get into quickly, uh, and then I want to talk about bridges, and then we'll wrap this up. And I've kept you on here a while, but when it comes to censorship resistance and privacy, right? These are such core tenets of of crypto and Web three. Sometimes I wonder, though, when it comes to censorship resistance, um, Ethereum may be censorship resistant. Uh, Bitcoin may be censorship resistant. The applications built on top of Ethereum are not necessarily censorship resistant. And the track record so far, for better or for worse, at least in my estimation, isn't that strong for being censorship resistant. Um, So where do you think this kind of falls down in terms of this being a narrative versus being reality? Because I'll just say, and I, and I like these, these, these companies a lot and uh, really respect what they're doing. But I mean, when you look at the biggest stable coin issuers right now, they all will comply with uh, authorities to, what you could only call censoring oh, tether, people, but... right? Uh, and they might be doing it for good reason. Yeah. I'm not criticizing them doing it. Maybe this is going to a, a terrorist organization or someone committing a heinous crime, and we don't want the money in their hands. But just getting back to it fundamentally, I mean, it, it, there still is more censorship than sometimes people in crypto and Web3 let on going on. Is there not? Yeah, definitely. I think... That's one of the challenges. Like if you look at kind of Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, at the early beginnings, like the idea, let's think about Bitcoin, like anyone could be a miner and you could be pretty successful mining on your GPU, even your CPU back then, like anyone could get their 50 Bitcoins from mining a block initially. Um, And so you're kind of in the system at that point. You could run a node yourself, broadcast your own transactions. So you could send money without the need for any third party. That was like the reason to etra um, of Bitcoin. Well, now you are not going to be able to mine if you're on CPU, even if you're on GPU. And unless you're going to throw money, a load of a massive ASIC farm, you're probably not going to beat the, the miners out there. So if you want to get hold of Bitcoin now, the chances are you're going to have to use some kind of centralized service, which could, for whatever reason, decide to censor you, limit your uh, access to it. There's still options, like you could do peer-to-peer transactions, like with local Bitcoins. They do have some level of KYC now, but, you know, there are routes to get hold of Bitcoin outside of a central intermediary, but it is much more challenging and suddenly way more challenging than initially when you could mine it. You still can, though, spin up a node, and there's really good guidance on, like, Bitcoin.org, for instance, on how to do that yourself. So if you wanted to be able to send Bitcoin to someone anywhere in the world, you could do it yourself without touching any third party, but it 
it's, it is hard. It's way harder than if you do it through a central intermediary. So the non-censorship route there is, is a big lift. When we consider Ethereum, um, at the moment, again, mining and trying to do that successfully yourself with like a CPU or a GPU, still super tricky. When we move to proof of stake, Gotta be really tricky because proof of stake, you gotta have some to get some. Uh, it's super high level of that. Um, using a third party is always gonna be easier to buy it uh, than mining or soon to be validating. Um, but being able to send it right now is becoming increasingly more tricky on Ethereum because the blockchain is just massive. <laughs> so running a node yourself is huge work. Yeah, there's you know the ability to run a light client, but if you want the whole state of the, the blockchain, that's a heavy lift. And so that's one of the reasons that Ethereum is moving towards the kind of future roadmap. It's a roadmap. It's the idea of basically low resource requirement for nodes with the ability to do high computation. That's like the one liner of where they're going. So anyone can still spin up a node. Anyone can validate and participate in the network. It still is going to be tricky to get hold of uncensorable money, whether it's Bitcoin, Ether or anything else like you more than likely are going to have to rely on a third party. So I do think it's a really important kind of question and observation that you've made of like it isn't completely censorable at all. But neither is like cash, I suppose, like if the if the the people that kind of are want to stop you accessing US dollars or GBP. You can try and find someone in a dark alleyway to interchange it with you. But like if the police are on your trail, that's probably going to be hard. If you've got the FBI looking at everything you do. So there really is no such thing as complete censorship resistance in, in any money out there, whether it's fiat, whether it's digital money, whether it's crypto. Uh, but at least I think what we need to make sure that we have in crypto still is ways to get hold of Bitcoin through kind of peer-to-peer -peer channels. And, and yes, some criminals may use it, but also as with mixers, there's perfectly legitimate use cases. And then making sure that the resource requirements for running a node, broadcasting transactions, validating, like just sending it is still within the realms of a, a person to do uh, without the need for a third party to help. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, it just it just goes back to this idea of when things are complex, we try to think of simple ways to explain them. And for some people, that might be uh, Bitcoin is horrible for the environment. Now, you and I are, are going to probably fall on, on the side of that argument where we say that's that's not a it's not true. B, it's an oversimplification of certain things. And And I just wonder sometimes within the industry, if in an effort to explain these things without going way into the weeds, which you can't with everybody, whether we sometimes uh, reach these oversimplifications as well, which, and just need to be more honest, with, like as an industry and with people outside of it, when we're talking about it, about uh, kind of censorship and privacy. And uh, th this, th this brings me to the, the next question for you, which touches on both of these censorship and privacy. So there was a, uh, and you wrote about this, there, there was a, a social media personality who took the internet by storm recently. People probably know who I'm talking about. I won't even say who it is because I don't want to promote him. I think most people, I think most people who are familiar with this <laughs> yeah. individual uh, would find him to be, uh, let's say distasteful uh, at the best, but yeah, but he was censored. And th this just gets into a debate about whether you think that censorship shouldn't exist at all or whether it should. And that's where, you know, going back to the previous question, like I'm just saying, I think we need to be honest about the fact that there still is an amount of censorship in Web3 and on crypto. Uh, but that depends on where you fall on the debate. I mean, are you somebody who says there should never be any censorship of any kind for any reason? 
uh, again, you know, going back to here in the States, I mean, that's our First Amendment right is free speech. But there are very clear limits on that. And the most common example that people bring up is that you can't scream fire in a movie theater because it may cause people to rush for the exits. And in that event, people may get trampled and hurt. So you don't these aren't you don't have just carte blanche on say anything. But what yeah. you do have is uh, you 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 can you can speak your mind and uh, whether it's governments or individuals do not have the right to shut you down and censor you, no matter how distasteful they may find you now. And that's really what free speech protects. Sometimes people need to be reminded of this. It seems very obvious that free speech is not to protect the speech of people you agree with. Uh, the biggest authoritarians in history have promoted free speech if that's what free speech was uh it is to you know you have to you have yeah. to uh protect the right of people who you find to be horrible uh <laughs> and 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 spout these opinions and world views uh that are just atrocious and uh you know as long as they are not kind of physically harming somebody else or violating a law then uh that's that's okay. Now, this individual was censored from uh, social media platforms, which you don't have the same free speech protections there. Free speech really protects you from uh, government persecution more so than private company persecution. So yeah. uh, while I don't like some of the censorship that goes on on the YouTubes, Facebooks, Twitters, et cetera, of the world, I understand why they removed this individual. First question, and if you don't mind, I'll just ask both of them in, uh, at once. The, the first question would go to censorship, which is, is it true that a, that a Web3 decentralized application, social media application, that this individual would not be censored in that world? Or would it just be a different governance model where the DAO would decide to probably eventually censor this person anyway? And then um, on the privacy front, that is really interesting how you found out that this well, we all knew that this individual ran this quote unquote university uh, where, you know, you teach people to be macho and uh, all, all this stuff. And it was a multi-level marketing scheme where it's go promote my videos. And that, that's how it became yeah. so popular on the Internet. But you found out they accepted crypto. You found the address for that. You were able to determine that they brought in in the neighborhood of two point five million dollars or pounds. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, somewhere in that neighborhood. That gets to my second question. Very long questions, I know, but the, the first one concerns censorship. The second one is about privacy. Um, not that you did anything wrong there. I mean, I, you, just, you just kind of followed the money. Mm -hmm. It does present an entirely new view of privacy that we've really never looked at before, which is if you were running a private company prior to this, and I wanted to know how much revenue you were bringing in from a particular source, like in this case, I would either need you to tell me that uh, I would need to hack you uh, and look at documents, or I would need a mole within your organization who likely would be violating legal agreements with you as their employer uh, to tell me that. Now, operating on a public blockchain, you were able to figure out how much they brought in uh, via crypto without going to any of those lengths. You didn't talk to the owner. You didn't have to do anything illegal and you didn't have to ask anyone else to violate a contract that they may have with their employer. And you were just able to see that. Now, again, privacy being such a core tenant of crypto, it seems like maybe we need a new definition of privacy there. And it is somewhat uh, you're operating under a pseudonym, but you were able to pretty quickly find out what their public wallet address was. And if you know that, you know everything, right? Yeah. So I think that 
the difference here is, and I don't know what it's like in the US, but for instance, UK companies have to file accounts with Companies House. So I can actually go and look at the revenue, the profit, the in many cases, the director's salaries um, and the remunerations for any UK company. That is all publicly available information. You need to know where to look. You've got to go to Companies House. Um, and certainly I've got a you know, started my life in banking. So looking through these uh, accounts a lot. So I have a, a good grasp of how to read them. But that information is public. Um, and with uh, the the case that we've looked into, and I like the fact we're not even naming him because it's, it's like Voldemort, he who shall not be named. Um, you know, that information, if he was uh, creating it under a public company, assuming that he was filing accounts as he's legally obliged to do, I could have looked in there and looked at his top level revenue, it would have included crypto as a part of that, but I was able to get the addresses and, and just look straight on the blockchain. But he is a company operating uh, as a, a public company. And so I think there is a big difference here between the kind of financial privacy of a company operating in a regulated space versus an individual and so um, I'm not I don't think I'm necessarily saying like you know companies shouldn't have any level of financial privacy but I think it is a, a slightly different question than the financial privacy of an individual but even on the individual level uh, and obviously I can create multiple wallets but I think for that the average user who's not always going to be technical enough or want to put the effort in to be outrunning uh, you in a way you, you could pretty, pretty quickly, if we were in a, in a, in an all crypto world on public blockchains, you could pretty quickly uh, build a, a financial profile um, of, of someone. Um, would you, you know, another topic that you wrote about, and I believe you and Vitalik, you mentioned had a, a opposing views on this. And I know he's, not very impressed with bridges, doesn't think they're necessary or safe. Um, and so I'm assuming you fall on the other side of that, which I'm interested to hear about. But would you tell <laughs> listeners just a little bit about what bridges are in crypto? And then we've had this series of hacks with uh, Wormhole Horizon and Nomad, which I believe have all happened this year. Um, and I mean, yeah. this has led to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um Lost at the time. Some more sophisticated than others. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was. I have it written here. One of them. Oh, it was the, nomad, the, the nomad one. Like most of the funds stolen oh. there, it wasn't even very sophisticated, right? It was just such a such kind of an obvious mm -hmm. exploit that once the first person did it, other people were just copying the exploit and putting in their own addresses. But yeah. uh, we talk a little bit about. Let's just start with like, what are bridges? Why do they matter? Are they going to stick around? Uh, can we just custody this this stuff in a different way rather than, you know, forming these bridges between blockchains? Yeah, so I think the best way to think about them is that we have all of these like mini ecosystems with Bitcoin, Ethereum, Polkadot, Cardano, and they're all uh, for the large part just kind of existing by themselves, doing whatever they were created to do. So Bitcoin was created to be a digital form of cash. You've got Ethereum over there, which is like this decentralized world computer. You've got Polkadot, which is kind of a competitor of it. Um, certainly uh, the, the founder of it was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. You've got Cardano, actually also co-founder of Ethereum. We've got a bit of a theme here, but you've got all of these different ecosystems with different use cases or just different ways of thinking about things. And in them, they have their own assets. So there'll be a native asset and then they could also have a really rich token ecosystem. 
And the kind of fundamental question is, if I own something over here in Ethereum, but I want to move some of the value over to, say, Polkadot, how do I do that? Do I need to go and sell my Ether for DOT in an exchange? Or can I just essentially kind of port it over there? And so there's this idea of a bridge, which basically connects two ecosystems together. So you're able to move an asset that you own in one, or even information as well, but uh, an asset you own in one over to another ecosystem so that you can utilize it there instead of having to sell it and then essentially buy again in the, in the new ecosystem. And one of the challenges with bridges, and I, I spoke about this in my um, indirect hand-to-head with uh, Vitalik, but yeah, we take different views. Uh, there's a lot of value going through those bridges, like millions or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value. And for a large part, many of these bridges are pretty untested territory. You know, some are built with straw, some are built with wood, some are built with concrete. Like, you know, there isn't a universal bridge design which is is gold plate standard or platinum plate standard diamond plate standard you know people are writing code and some of it's a bit buggy Uh, some of it is great but then someone else finds a hole in it and a way to exploit it so I think one of the challenges and what I said in the article is bridges in and of themselves the idea of moving assets between um, two different ecosystems isn't inherently like bad or unsafe it's the implementation that isn't great right now because it's new Bitcoin had bugs at the beginning it hard forked at the beginning because it was new it was untested Ethereum had a pretty big fork in 2016 do we forget the DAO hack things got changed improvements were made you know like that is part of software is that you find bugs you fix it find me a development team anywhere in the world in any part of history who has written completely bug-free code over some like length of time does not exist the greatest engineers in the world write bugs because they make mistakes or because there's new technology which you're just not sure how it will behave in the wild and so I think expecting bridges to somehow be foolproof is just unrealistic. There's always going to be challenges with them. And when we look at the bridge hacks, you've named a whole bunch of them. Those bridges will now become better as a result of those uh, bugs being made. It just so happens that the bugs were found when there was billions or millions of dollars moving through rather than, you know, teeny tiny amount. So it looks like a much bigger issue. But I think fundamentally, where my belief differs from Vitalik's is like we will have different ecosystems and it will be important to move value between them just as we'll have different metaverses and you'll want interoperability between them or we have different social media platforms like I don't believe in a monopoly being a good thing and Vitalik might think that everything can and should exist on the Ethereum blockchain I personally disagree and that's why I'm a a Bitcoin minimalist I believe in Bitcoin plus more Um, I've could be classified, I suppose, as an Ethereum minimalist as well. I believe in Ethereum and more. And so because I believe in this existence of other chains and ecosystems having value, I believe we should be able to move value between them. And so whether that's bridges in their current construct today, whether we create some kind of like, um, I don't know, warp pads, we'll maybe call them, or teleports, you know, choose your name. But the idea fundamentally is being able to move something from here to there. And I think that's always going to be important, just as it is in the real world with data, with goods, with people. I suppose I'm also a, a, an Ethereum minimalist. Still need to get better at, at <laughs> saying that. Uh, and I'm happy you brought up the DAO hack of 2016. We actually do go over that in the Atria program. And it's an, it's, 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 it's an important thing to point out. And it's one of the reasons that for me personally, uh, I like the roles that both Bitcoin and Ethereum play. And I like the Bitcoin community 
being a little bit more rigid. And when people say, hey, let's just move this to proof of stake mm-hmm. and there's not much appetite for that, I don't really want Bitcoin to change. Mm-hmm. I think the stuff going on on the Lightning Network's interesting. I, you know, if they, do, you know, figure out the stablecoin development, that could be really impactful. But I don't really want Bitcoin to change much. And then on the flip side, I like having an Ethereum that can change like pretty dramatically over yeah. time. And um, you don't need everything to be rigid. It's nice to have both, uh, you know, both of those things. So, yeah, exactly. we get into the DAO hack and, um, you know, t- tough call to make. But I think you were at least at that time early enough in the development as well and had a small enough community, to be honest, where it was, it was easier to get yeah. miners on board with. We're not letting these people get away with fifty million dollars uh, out of one hundred fifty or whatever it exactly. was that were raised for this. Like basically, the DAO hack for for listeners, the DAO was a a community driven venture capital fund essentially, and they raised one hundred fifty million dollars. Hackers stole fifty million, and the community had to decide whether to hard fork, meaning uh, make a change that that the prior blockchain wouldn't be compatible with it anymore, and decided to kind of make an Ethereum two point if you will, and the 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 prior chain remained as Ethereum Classic. Ethereum went in a different direction, and the the funds were returned. Um, I think a lot of people think that that was the right choice. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily like to see Bitcoin doing things like that. Um, but with I like having both. So that's my view on that. I agree. Um, yeah. Now, quickly before we wrap up here, I two quick questions. One, I know you were at uh, HSBC early in your career. What role do you think? traditional finance will or should, which I know are two different questions, uh, play (laughs) in this development? Because in my mind, there's this practical track, right? And I think think a lot of traditional institutional finance is waking up to the idea of, oh, there's a lot of practical use cases where we can improve this back end. You know, a lot of fintechs has kind of been a cosmetic uh, upgrades. There hasn't been much on the back end for 50 years or so. and they're seeing that, but they don't, there's the ideology of traditional finance getting involved in DeFi. There's a very obvious contradiction there, especially if you go back to the Bitcoin white paper. I don't mind traditional finance getting involved, but like, let's call it for what it is. I mean, in the Bitcoin white paper, it was pretty explicitly trying to cut them out of the equation. <laughs> so where do you think traditional finance fits in? Yeah, so I think... Um... We're not going to see, um, I would be very surprised if I'm wrong on this, but we're not going to see, you know, HSBC, Barclays, City, whoever, suddenly become a DAO, be built on blockchains with only stable coins um, and completely replacing their infrastructure. That's just like, wow. I mean, I know what would have to happen in the world for that to, to be the true. So I think what we'll more than likely see is that they'll want to start getting involved to think about how they can offer crypto assets to their customers. How can they be a fiat on and off ramp? Because that's their, their fiat dealers. That's you know what they do. Um, they do you know borrowing and lending and offer those kind of services. So maybe they'll try and dabble in uh, the DeFi space and understand how whether they create services um, to kind of compete with Aave, for instance, or Compound, or whether they throw in a load of liquidity to them. I think they're still trying to figure out like, are they in competition? Can they collaborate? But the big piece for for TradFi is really around education. The bankers know traditional finance. They get economics. They don't largely get 
blockchain technology. And I know that because I started my career in a bank trying to educate them all. And I still continue today educating bankers on, on crypto and how it works. And so I think for them, like there's such a big learning hurdle. There's a lot of misconceptions they still need to get over to kind of understand the power of the technology. And then they just, they need to kind of decide like, do we hate it? Do we love it? And what I'm seeing from most banks is they're realizing we can't fight this, nor should we fight this. And initially they, they clearly were like, we hate crypto. You know, in 2016, I always joke there was this uh, narrative of like, we love blockchain. We hate Bitcoin. Like they were yeah. complete blockchain maximalists and they hated crypto assets. And I was like, do you kind of realize these two things are kind of related? Um, and so we still do see a bunch of projects in banks looking at distributed ledger technology, DLT and blockchains. And they're trying to like largely pretend that Bitcoin isn't a thing. But there's a lot more kind of progressive banks now and financial institutions like Fidelity, Wells Fargo, um, the countless others, BlackRock, um, all kind of actually thinking, you know what? If we're not going to fight it, how do we embrace it? Now, do I think that means that crypto should be completely co-opted by financial institutions on TradFi? No, definitely not. My personal view is that it's great that we have this slightly more libertarian, uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, decentralized view of crypto. And I think at this point, and maybe this is quite maverick to say, so this is definitely personal opinion here, but like crypto doesn't need TradFi to be successful, but I think we're getting to a position where TradFi might need yeah. crypto to continue staying relevant. Um, and so that's why I'll, I think we'll probably see more and more banks try to, first of all, understand it, and second of all, try and use it. It's kind of like their approach with social media. Like they, first of all, were like, what is that thing called Instagram? What is TikTok? What is Facebook? Um, and then they start to go, okay, this is where the people are. We need to start advertising on there. We need to start building brand engagement. And suddenly you had like host social media teams and banks. Were they trying to like buy Facebook or replace Instagram? No, they were trying to look at how to leverage it for what banks want at the end of the day, which is more customer engagement, more money kind of coming through the door and people using their services. So I think that's probably where we'll see kind of TradFi going is first of all learning and then trying to understand how they can effectively offer crypto to their customers. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I, I sometimes go back to the example, I'll talk to friends about it where Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan was was and and <laughs> yes. by the way, I'm a big Brian Armstrong fan from from Coinbase as well. I know you said that earlier, so I want to put that caveat in where I, I really like Brian as well and have a, a tremendous amount of respect for him. But um, you know, you go back to the example of Jamie Dimon several years ago, who in the same week is saying that crypto is a scam. Maybe Bitcoin specifically, yeah. but I think you the, his message was crypto is a scam. Also. Yeah. behind closed doors meeting with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase in the same week. And, you know, we'll talk about that. And sometimes friends will scoff. And and then I say, that's exactly what he should have said and done. <laughs> like, like in his position. <laughs> I mean, he was hedging yeah, his right? back. Yeah, you're just in yeah. that. That's actually like what a big bank like that should be pretty risk averse. And how can you be more risk averse than playing all sides? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's true. And like we see it so often, like, you know, companies, whether it's TradFi or otherwise, like they don't want to take a position on a future piece of tech, not knowing where it'll go. So I don't blame him for making those comments. Did it annoy me at the time? Yes, of course it did. I was like, what are you doing saying this? And, you know, Elon is pro-Doge, anti-Bitcoin, and that changes kind of however he yeah. wakes up in the day, I suppose. But like, you know, we see these people kind of struggling to take a position. And I think with all of it, it comes down to like, 
they need to just understand the industry more, the technology more. Like it's very easy to make kind of flippant comments and, and it's very easy to sit on the fence when you don't have like a really good understanding of it. And you know, these people are, you know, Elon is a genius in so many fields. Like, is he a rocket scientist? Literally, yes. Uh, does Jamie Dimon run one of the biggest banks in the world with a financial portfolio, which is, you know, almost unimaginable in terms of the numbers? Yes. Are they crypto experts? No. Do they speak on behalf of the industry? No. So it's as much about learning or kind of educating and engaging those people as it is with, you know, the everyday person potentially putting in uh, a couple of uh, dollars into Bitcoin or Ether or buying an NFT. So I think it all comes back to this idea of like education is absolutely key so that anyone, whether you've got a Twitter following of one or 10 million uh, can make a kind of uh, sensible commentary on where they believe the market is going or where they believe, more importantly, the industry is I going. I agree with that. And I think, I think the, the proper actions, the proper way to speak about things depends on who you are and what position you're in. Uh, like it might be all right for some, some traditional finance to stay on the fence about it for a certain amount of time. And when it makes sense, they can join. And they, it's kind of a no harm, no foul. I mean, what did they lose by not getting in earlier? Uh, maybe they'll make an acquisition of a company in the Web3 space. Maybe they'll make investment. I mean, uh, JP Morgan, going back to, to that example again, I mean, they've made some substantial investments uh, in companies in this space. So, you know, they can be not all in while still uh, kind of enjoying the upside and getting involved in the way that they see fit. Um, I've seen it said in variations of this quote that uh, that you know a technology has been adopted when we stop talking about it. Now, I find that to be a half-truth, personally. Mm. Uh, look, I mean, take a cloud computing, for instance, clearly adopted. Yeah. Uh, we still talk about it all the time. So I, I don't necessarily buy in 100% of that quote, but I I get the gist of it, and I agree with with part of it, which is, you know, when we're always talking about blockchain technology and NFTs and those of us in the space, do you have a prediction for just how long before we're using a lot of terminology and when the end users were delivering good enough experiences to them where the word blockchain isn't even being brought up on a daily basis anywhere on, on CNBC, on social media? Oh, yeah, such a good question. So years definitely would be my timeline. Maybe like five years, but it's so hard to say. Uh, what is it? Bill Gates always says something like, um, people tend to overestimate the impact in the short term and underestimate the yeah. impact in the long term. So I think, you know, it's so hard to give a kind of uh, scale on this one. But I, 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 you know, I see kind of positive steps with uh, people like, for instance, Ticketmaster. Yeah. I think they're in the UK, but other markets, they're looking at doing NFT tickets, but they're not looking, I, well, I think they'll do a bit of marketing because it sounds sexy, but they're not doing it because it's an NFT. They're doing it because they want to use it to fight ticket scalping and fraudulent ticket sales and, and having the immutability of the blockchain to do royalty payments, etc. when you resell it on. And so they're looking at the technology and the use case of it and going, actually, this is pretty useful for us, as opposed to looking at it as just a marketing ploy. And I think that's a really interesting use case and a really good indication that people are trying to get beyond the hype. You've got, you know, Coca-Cola, for instance, did like an NFT launch and they were not, there was like a bubble jacket and a, and a vending machine. It wasn't all that. And it, Clearly, they were just using it to say, we do NFTs, aren't we cool? And like, down with the kids. Um, whereas I think this use case by Ticketmaster is where they're trying to make blockchain boring. They, they don't almost care it's blockchain. They're like, we just love the use yeah. case. This is great. And I think hopefully we'll start to see more of that. 
where you, you know, enter a metaverse in VR and you're like, oh, is this centralized or decentralized? It's kind of like, oh, you know, you, you almost don't need to know the experience is the important thing. Or you use a service online, and you're like, is this on a blockchain? I can't really tell. Oh, I'm using MetaMask. Yeah, interesting. Like it's when you start to kind of make it seamless and that all comes down to use case. If it's a use case that is like legitimate and works, it kind of doesn't matter what rails you've built it on. Like, you know, just like a website. If a website works, do you care whether the language is like JavaScript or C++? No, you don't You don't care. You don't care at all. It's just a beautiful website that functions. And so I think hopefully we're kind of getting to that world where the underlying technology, you don't really mind. Is it built on Polkadot? Is it built on Ethereum? I don't care. It's just a really great dApp. Um, I think we'll continue to see that more and more where people focus on use case as opposed to like sexy marketing spiel to be able to say like, oh, we're a NFT based platform in the metaverse that does DeFi. And we also have this fantastic service where like X, Y, Z, you throw all the buzzwords in. Like, let's strip that away and just focus on use case and, and building things. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we went back six months ago, each one of those buzzwords would have would have got you an additional $10 million in fundraising, but not right now. And <laughs> yeah. I, you know, have, having spent time in the marketing and advertising world, I, I respect the the brands trying to get involved, even when it seems gimmicky and they're trying to find ways, but it, it does sometimes feel like that Steve Buscemi meme where he has the, the skateboard slung over his shoulder, the backwards hat, the shirt that says music on it. And, and then the, in the caption says, hello, my fellow kids, how do you do? Or something like that, you know, kind of trying to fit into the, the trend it but even with the ticketmaster thing i'll be i'll be completely honest with you when sometimes things feel like a contradiction because uh, i really like what ticketmaster is doing too and you explained it well but you know they're doing that on flow which is a dapper labs project dapper labs is an mm-hmm. andreessen horowitz investment i have nothing against any of these like i like dapper labs i like andreessen horowitz but there's obviously some of that tension in the air as well in the web3 space and you saw jack dorsey get into it with was it Mark Andreessen specifically or someone in the at at A16Z where he was Plus, saying, yeah. like, you know, don't buy into this hype. Stop buying. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think I think Jack Dorsey's point was to people like us in the industry. I mean, don't lie to yourselves. I mean, it's it's still owned by all the same people at the end of the day. And that that's probably a little bit more of an intense point of view than I personally would take. But that's that's what he was saying. And, you know, so you get into Ticketmaster using blockchain for doing this. You kind of follow that 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 line back down, kind of figure out the puzzle. And, you know, sometimes sometimes all things tech lead back to Andreessen Horowitz in some sort of way. Yeah, but then. So I would, I think it's important to consider like outside of the tech space here, like when you look, um, I won't be able to find the graphic, but there's a really great graphic, which has all of these consumer like food and drink brands. And when you trace them all back, they basically go to like four yep. super companies that own everything. And you look at them, you're like, oh, wow, like, there's like hundreds of brands on here, but it's only like four like high level brands. Now, does that matter to me as a consumer? Maybe, but do I still have choice? Yes. And you know, if you want to go and buy some like small town farmer's market ketchup out there and not give to those brands, as long as you have access to that, that's important. And so I think choice and access is what's really key. So yes, it might be that most crypto exchanges, for instance, are owned by A16Z or a Y Combinator or whoever it may be out there. But do you still have the choice and the access to use someone that isn't and that is like peer to peer or something? That I think is absolutely critical. So yes, I hope they don't go and buy kind of everything out there in the space. Um, But I I don't think they can from a monetary perspective. And 
maybe antitrust will finally kind of get on board and, and stop some of the things that we saw with Facebook in the early days or Google or Amazon just like buying up all competition. But I think as long as we still have those like homegrown options and access to them, that's what's really important. Well, I, I'm from Pittsburgh, so having anything other than Heinz ketchup is a sacrilege to us <laughs> but yeah i've seen those charts that you're talking about it's like a, oh do you prefer san pellegrino or perrier and then you know same owners but yeah. but to your point uh a little bit of a different taste i'm i'm personally in the san pellegrino category but uh like i do have a preference there it's kind of like a nike and adidas type of thing where you have a preference still and uh, i think it's a good point um tara this has been such a fantastic conversation i want to uh let listeners know that they can follow you on LinkedIn, which is where I consume a lot of my content at Tara Anison. Um, your Twitter, is it just your name as well? Yeah. Yeah. Nice and easy. Relaunched your website recently, which is WAGME, which is an acronym for we're all going to make it, which is a big thing in the crypto industry. <laughs> so WAGME, that's W-A-G-M-I gifts, G-I-F-T-S dot com. Uh, on there, you have Cards Against Cryptocurrency, which I was curious if the Cards Against Humanity people, have, <laughs> have they given you any trouble about that? Yeah, so I actually got a cease and desist from them. Um, <laughs> but they were absolutely lovely. Like, shout out to Nick, the lawyer there. He was a dream. Um, I rebranded in terms of color, slightly changed the name. It used to be Cards Against Cryptocurrency. It's now The Game Against Cryptocurrency. They're all happy with it. I'm happy. Um, so yeah, we do have that. It is a inspired by Cards Against Humanity, as as many card games out there. It's like a fill in the blank game, you know. Uh, mine is less horrible things uh, into like to the bone. Uh, it's all kind of crypto memes, jokes, um, and kind of like historical points. So uh, yeah, definitely fun for if you've got a party room of like a load of crypto nerds. You can find the game against cryptocurrency also the bitcoin abc book which i need to get i just sent uh to my nephew who's only a few months old i sent my brother and my sister-in-law i don't know if you've ever seen the uh the series physics for babies and they have nuclear oh, it's so cute and they have oh, nuclear physics for babies cute. quantum physics for babies, that whole thing so uh the bitcoin abc book will fit nicely in with that that collection um <laughs> and as i told my brother when i sent them you know don't be embarrassed if you learn a thing or two Oh, hundred percent. I have had some of some of some people in the space who I consider super knowledgeable. They're ready and like, oh, I didn't know about this. I'm like, it is a book for all ages. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tara. It's been uh, been great talking to you. Appreciate you joining the Atria podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been super good fun. 